Sit back. What NFC East quarterback? Relax. In the movie Ocean's Eleven. Put on your think cap. What prized possession did Danny Ocean get ready for the show? In chemistry, what is the name of the principal? And here's your host. During what year was the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Kevin. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the Think Cap Trivia Podcast. My name is Kevin, and it's my pleasure to be your host. For those of you listening for the first time, let me go over how this podcast is going to work. At the beginning of the show, I will ask 10 trivia questions to you and give you a few moments to think of your answers. Then I will go through each question one by one and give you the answer and some commentary about the answer, whether it be some history or data or even just some fun pieces of nickel knowledge. So this isn't your standard trivia outfit that just gives you a question and an answer. I will give you a brief breakdown that will hopefully keep you entertained while also satisfying your curiosity about some of the topics. And if you don't know many of the answers or get stumped on a couple of them, just know that I generally tend to choose questions that hedge towards being a little bit more difficult as they generally have a bit more background information that makes them a little bit more fun to discuss. My goal is that even if you're not the biggest competitive trivia fan in the world, ThinkCap will become your go-to podcast to supplement your knowledge to help you learn a little bit about something new for your own satisfaction or even to share with others. The show is all general trivia topics, so you never know what you're going to get each week. If you are a fan of my show and enjoy what you are about to hear, I ask that you please recommend the podcast to a friend or to a fellow trivia lover. Getting the word out there about ThinkCap really helps my ability to grow and produce more content. Speaking of content, to keep up with everything ThinkCap, you can follow at T-H-I-N-K-K-A-P on Instagram or follow on Facebook with the same name. I post fun facts and historical events and brain teasers, and we actually just had our first merch giveaway on last week's podcast, uh, so if you are listening to this on the Monday it was released, that means you still have one more day to get a chance to enter in to win a free ThinkCap t-shirt, as we will announce the winner tomorrow. So uh, go back to the Instagram page and check out that post to see what you have to do to get entered in to win that. And, of course, be on the lookout for more opportunities to win some gear. So with that being said, let me once again welcome you to ThinkCap, and let's get this show started. Alright, so once again, I've got a couple different questions for you today, and what I'm going to do is read each question for you, give you a couple moments to think about each one, and then go through and break down each question one by one. So sit back and relax, and let me read these questions for you. Question number one, what is the name of the land, which is the only place in the contiguous United States north of the 49th parallel that can only be accessed by land through Canada or by boat? Once again, what is the name of the land, which is the only place in the contiguous United States north of the 49th parallel that can only be accessed by land through Canada or by boat? Question number two, the song House of the Rising Sun was popularized by the band The Animals in 1964. In the song, where was the House of the Rising Sun located? 
Once again, the song The House of the Rising Sun was popularized by the band The Animals in 1964. In the song, where was the House of the Rising Sun located? Question number three. What was the first complete symphony to ever be recorded? Once again, what was the first complete symphony to ever be recorded? Question number five. Where would you find the world-famous Wailing Wall? Once again, where would you find the world-famous Wailing Wall? Question number six. What state constitution was the first to prohibit slavery? Once again, which state's constitution was the first to prohibit slavery? Question number seven. The Lockheed F-117 Nighthawk was the first aircraft to be known for its what? Once again, the Lockheed F-117 Nighthawk was the first aircraft to be known for its what? Question number eight. What is the only creature in which the male gives birth? Once again, what animal is the only creature in which the male gives birth? Question number nine. What American man was awarded Hitler's Grand Cross of the Order of the German Eagle on his 75th birthday? Once again, what American man was awarded Hitler's Grand Cross of the Order of the German Eagle on his 75th birthday? And question number 10. How many bands are there on the bottom of the Stanley Cup where the winning team's names are engraved. Once again, how many bands are there on the bottom of the Stanley Cup where the winning team's names are engraved? All right, so now that I have read all 10 questions for you and given you a few moments to think over your answers, I'm going to go through, as I said before, and read each question one by one and give you a little bit of detail behind the answers. So. Let's get started here with question number one, which was, what is the name of the land which is the only place in the contiguous United States north of the 49th parallel that can only be accessed by land through Canada or by boat? And your correct answer is the Angle Inlet, otherwise known as the Northwest Angle. The Angle Inlet is part of Minnesota and is the northernmost part of the state. The 1846 Oregon Treaty between the U.S. and Great Britain set the boundary between the United States and British North America, now Canada, at the 49th parallel north. However, due to various mapping mistakes and confusion over the location of the headwaters of the Mississippi River, the U.S.-Canada border juts northward in just this one spot to include the piece of land north of the 49th parallel. As of the 2010 census, the population in the area was reported 
to be just 60 people. The area is one of six practical exclaves that exist for the United States. A practical exclave is a part of a territory of one country that can be conveniently approached, um, in particular just by wheeled traffic, only through the territory of another country. So in order to get to this part of your country, you have to drive through another, is essentially what that means. Um, another example of this, which was the result of the same treaty of uh, the Oregon Treaty, was Point Roberts, Washington, which is an area of the state that can only be reached by traveling first through British Columbia, Canada. Alberg, Vermont is another example, as it is located on a peninsula which is connected to Canada. Um, in this case, though, it is only a geographical exclave, as over time we have now built bridges that connect it to the rest of the United States. Because of Alaska's geometry and proximity to Canada, there are a couple practical exclaves up there as well, but the regions really do make for interesting features and usually have something to do with mapping errors and sometimes in the changing of bodies of water, such as rivers taking new shapes over time due to flooding and other factors. But yeah, just overall pretty peculiar um, pieces of geography. And in this case, the Angle Inlet is the northernmost part of the contiguous United States as a result of some mapping errors. Question number two was the song House of the Rising Sun was popularized by the band The Animals in 1964. In the song, where was the House of the Rising Sun located? And your correct answer is New Orleans. New Orleans is your right answer. The reason that the question states the song was popularized by the animals is that the origins of the song are not exactly clear. The tune was a classic folk song that some think had its origins in old English folk ballads, and it was just passed down over time. Others think that it has French origins, as the rising sun imagery is similar to the sunburst imagery used by King Louis XIV, who was known as the Sun King. But regardless, it's an interesting case, as the oldest known published lyrics of the song appeared in Adventure magazine in 1925, and the oldest recording of the song was entitled Rising Sun Blues by Clarence Tom Ashley and Gwen Foster, who recorded it on September 6th of 1933. Many folk and blues artists recorded their renditions of the song in the early to mid-1900s, including Bob Dylan, who recorded the track in 1961. But it was in 1964 that the Animals version, which was included on the group's 1964 debut album named The Animals, uh, that it was that track that immortalized the song in music history. The band recorded the song amazingly in one single take, noting that it really only took them about 15 minutes to complete the song. Their guitarist mirrored Dylan's chord progression and paired with the vocalist's soulful voice perfectly captured the feel of the song. It reached the top of the UK pop singles chart in July 1964 and did the same in the United States two months later where it stayed number one for three weeks. Some other prominent artists have covered the song including Thin Lizzy, Dolly Parton, and recently rock band Five Finger Death Punch, who changed the references to New Orleans to Sin City as an ode to their hometown of Las Vegas. 
And that's kind of the neat thing about traditional folk songs like this one is that so many artists from so many different genres are able to put their own spin on the song and although the animals version is considered to be the best no one rendition can really be dubbed to be proper because of the nature of folk songs where no one really knows the origin of the lyrics but everyone can enjoy singing along to their own favorite version and speaking of recordings that brings us to question three which was what was the first complete symphony to ever be recorded and your correct answer that symphony was Beethoven's fifth and although the phonograph was invented in 1877 it was approximately between 1910 and 1920 that the phonograph became a mass medium for popular music in those years its sales increased more than fivefold as the device became much a much more common household item and as people discovered the joys of recorded music recordings of large-scale orchestral works and other classical instrumentals naturally became something of interest to music fans the first large-scale symphonic recording of the nutcracker suite was issued in 1909 in england but this recording did not encompass the complete orchestral work there are a couple of recordings that are debated as to which came first but some research has me fairly confident in saying that Edward Konecki's recording of Beethoven's Fifth in August 1911 was the first. His name was not published as the conductor of the orchestra, most likely due to the fact that by the time the recording was released in 1913 and reached the shops in England, the country was already at war with Germany. Um, there's also a 1913 recording of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony by the Berlin Philharmonic, conducted by Arthur Nikish, which has also been regarded as the first complete recording of a full-length orchestral work, attributed by Joseph Segetti as the first recording of Beethoven's Fifth. This recording was widely distributed and marked a pivotal change in the music industry to begin the focus on the recording of music rather than strictly live performance. But like I said, there are a couple of recordings um, that musical historians debate over which came first. But for the sake of this trivia question, the most important thing is that each recording was a rendition of Beethoven's fifth. And the recording of music became a growing phenomenon as the phonograph matured during the early 1920s, and it really just marked the infancy of the new age musical industry that continues to boom today in the wake of digital recording. All right, and question number four was Michael Richards is an American actor, most famously known for his portrayal of what television character? And your correct answer is Cosmo Kramer from Seinfeld. Michael Richards began his career as a stand-up comedian, first entering the national spotlight in 1979 when he was featured on Billy Crystal's first cable TV special. For about 10 years, he bounced around, appearing in multiple different television shows and movies, including Weird Al's 1989 comedy film UHF. It was also in 1989 that Richards was cast to become the now-beloved character of Cosmo Kramer in Jerry Seinfeld's brand new sitcom. Kramer was the goofy next-door neighbor to Seinfeld's character, 
who was known for his upright hairstyle, his vintage outfits, and his comical outbursts. Richards did so well in this role that he won more Emmy Awards than any other member of the show, which was very successful uh, in its own right. He took home the prize for Outstanding Supporting Actor in a Comedy Series in 1993, 1994, and 1997. Seinfeld ran from uh, 89 to 98 and is considered by many as one of the greatest sitcoms of all time. After the finale of Seinfeld, Richards briefly returned to stand-up comedy and has appeared in dozens of other shows and movies. However, no role he has played since carries the same stature that Cosmo Kramer holds in the hearts of 90s comedy fans everywhere. Question number five was, where would you find the world-famous Wailing Wall? And your correct answer is Jerusalem. Jerusalem's the right answer. The wall itself is the only remaining piece of the second temple of Jerusalem that was uniquely holy to the ancient Jews but destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. The wall dates from about the second century BC. A combination of tradition, history, and archaeological research confirms that the wall is in fact as old as they claim it is and that it actually belonged to the ancient temple. The term Wailing Wall was coined by European travelers who witnessed the mournful vigils of the Jewish people before the relic of their sacred temple. There was a period of time where the Jewish people were not allowed in the holy city of Jerusalem except for once a year when they would mourn the loss of their holy temple. So, for those viewing from the outside, the name Wailing Wall became prevalent. However, most people in Jerusalem call it by its proper Hebrew name that translates roughly to Western Wall. So, some view the term Wailing Wall to be derogatory since it points towards a dark point in the people and the city's history and thus refer to it only by its proper name. So that's just something to be mindful of if you're ever visiting it or if you're ever speaking with a Jewish person or someone from Israel about the Western Wall is that that is probably the name that you should be calling it. Um, the Foundation Stone, which is one of, if not the holiest of all places in Jewish tradition, lies behind the wall, making the Western Wall the closest you can get to the stone and therefore the most holy place where one is able to pray. The Western Wall stands about 60 feet high and is about 120 feet long. Visitors to the wall have long followed the practice of wedging small slips of paper upon which prayers and petitions are written into the cracks between the stones. So if you ever have the privilege of visiting Jerusalem, regardless of your religious beliefs, it really is a neat piece of history to witness in person, but also you need to make sure to show the relic, the solemnity that it deserves. Question number six was, which state's constitution was the first to prohibit slavery? And your correct answer is Vermont. Vermont was the first to prohibit slavery from the beginning of from its inception, Vermont and its people were known for their independence. As a colony, they did not want to remain a part of the British crown, but they were not entirely keen on joining the United States either. They liked being independent, 
and made that clear to the other colonies on more than one occasion. On July 2nd, 1777, in response to the abolitionists' calls across the country, well, not really a country yet, to the colonies to end slavery, Vermont became the first colony to just ban it outright. In addition to their measures on slavery, Vermont also moved to provide full voting rights for African American males. When Vermont was admitted to the Union as the 14th state in 1791, it made them subject to the fugitive slave cause of the Constitution of the United States, which required fugitive slaves fleeing into a state whose laws forbid slavery to be returned. Later, the state was subject to the Fugitive Slave Acts of 1793 and 1850, allowing slave owners to recover fugitive slaves who fled to Vermont. On November 25th of 1858, though, Vermont ratified the Freedom Act, which declared that any slave brought into Vermont was free. It's worth noting that although all of these actions by the state's legislation was inherently good, African Americans during this period remained discriminated against and at times subjugated to harsh treatment similar to that suffered by the slaves in the South. But in general, they were treated at least physically in a more respectful manner than their kinsmen down South, and Vermont's attempts to make their lives better through legislation is certainly worthy of applause in a time when similar laws were unpopular with a majority of the wealthy stakeholders in the young nation. And question number seven was, the Lockheed F-117 Nighthawk was the first aircraft to be known for its what? And your correct answer is stealth. The F-117 Nighthawk was developed in response to the urgent national need for a jet fighter that could operate completely undetected by the enemy. This need arose after the Vietnam War when sophisticated Soviet surface-to-air missiles, or SAMs, downed American bombers. The aircraft was secretly developed by Skunk Works, which is the official pseudonym for Lockheed Martin's advanced development programs. Stealth aircrafts are designed with a focus on minimizing their radar cross-section rather than their aerodynamic performance. As a result, the F-117 is aerodynamically unstable in all three aircraft principal axes and requires constant flight corrections from a fly-by-wire flight system to maintain controlled flight. But the Nighthawk's sleek design and faceted angle surfaces enabled it to reflect radar waves and thus reduce its radar signature. In addition, it boasts an external coating of radar absorbent material, um, so it makes the aircraft nearly invisible to radar. Its maiden flight took place in 1981 at Groom Lake, Nevada, and the aircraft achieved initial operational capability in 1983. Um, it was kept under strict secrecy for many years. It wasn't until 1988 that the program was publicly acknowledged, and not until 1990 that it made its first formal public appearance. By this time, though, the aircraft had been operational for at least seven years. In total, 64 F-117s were built, with 59 of them actually going into service. 
and though retired by the U.S. Air Force in 2008, the F-117 is an aircraft that continues to fascinate and inspire. It paved the way for the future of stealth technology, and it really makes us wonder how much further we can continue pushing the limits of what's possible for our aircrafts. Alright, and that brings us to question number eight, which is going to be a quick one. The question was, what is the only sea creature in which the male gives birth? And your correct answer is the seahorse. The seahorse is the right answer. They are found in shallow, tropical, and temperate waters throughout the world, and they can range in size from about a half an inch to over a foot long. Ironically, they are not very good swimmers and can actually die from exhaustion if they must swim long distances or if they get swept away in a current or a storm. They use their tails to latch onto vegetation on the seafloor as to avoid being swept up by accident. Um, unlike most other fish and most other animals for that matter, they are monogamous and they mate for life. Rarer still, they are among the only animal species on Earth the trivia question in which the male bears the unborn young. Male seahorses are equipped with a brood pouch on their ventral or front-facing side. When mating, the female will deposit up to 1,500 eggs into the pouch and the male will fertilize them internally. The male will carry the eggs for 9 to 45 days until the offspring are fully developed and the young are then released into the water and the male often mates again within hours or days during the breeding season. So yeah, very interesting and very unique animal that obviously doesn't happen. It's kind of backwards from the way that the rest of the animal world works, but the seahorses seem to make it work for themselves. Question number nine was what American man was awarded Hitler's Grand Cross of the Order of the German Eagle on his 75th birthday? And your correct answer is Henry Ford. Henry Ford is the right answer. At a ceremony in Dearborn, Michigan in 1938, Henry Ford was presented with the Grand Cross of the Supreme Order of the German Eagle. This was the highest honor that Nazi Germany could give to any foreigner and represented Adolf Hitler's personal admiration and indebtedness to Henry Ford. In fact, Hitler kept a life-sized portrait of Ford next to his desk. Speaking in 1931 to a Detroit news reporter, Hitler said that he regarded Ford as his inspiration. In his book Mein Kampf, Hitler wrote, and this is translated of course, um, so it might not be the most perfect grammatical sentence, but only a single great man, Ford, who, to the Jews' fury, still maintains full independence from the controlling masters of the producers in a nation of 120 millions. And basically, Hitler was speaking about Ford in a positive light, and Ford was the only American to be mentioned in those texts in a positive way. Hitler revered Ford, saying that he would do his best to put his theories into practice in Germany. And he modeled the Volkswagen, which was known as the People's Car, on the Model T. Henry Ford was the first American recipient of the order, and which was an honor created in 1937 by Adolf Hitler. The admiration that the National Socialists had for Henry Ford was potentially 
um, reciprocated as the Detroit industrialist supposedly had sympathies for Nazism. It's fairly well known that Ford was anti-Semitic, but he was also very anti-war, which clashes with Nazi militarism. Ford was quoted as saying, quote, My acceptance of a medal from the German people does not, as some people seem to think, involve any sympathy on my part with Nazism. Those who know me for many years realize that anything that breeds hate is repulsive to me, end quote. But still, he did not turn down the award, which, I mean, he didn't travel to Germany to accept it, instead receiving it in Michigan, but it's still an interesting connection. Henry Ford truly was a keystone of the Roaring Twenties, and his famous assembly line process is still heavily utilized to this day, but his anti-Semitism and questionable political views can definitely muddy his historical role to some extent. And finally, we have question number 10, which was how many bands are there on the bottom of the Stanley Cup where winning teams' names are engraved? And your correct answer, there are five bands on the bottom of the Stanley Cup, and I will probably end up asking more Stanley Cup trivia questions in future episodes just because it's such a cool and unique trophy with lots of history attached to it. And honestly, I just kind of really enjoy talking about it and reading about it. It's, it's honestly just really cool to me. But for today, I'm going to just stick to the engraving of the winning team's names. So let's start at the beginning. The Stanley Cup is named after Lord Stanley of Preston, who was the 1892 Governor General of Canada. He donated the decorative cup to award Canada's top amateur hockey club after he and his family became infatuated with the sport at Montreal's 1889 Winter Carnival. It was first awarded to the Montreal Amateur Athletic Association, or MAAA, in 1893, and they were the first teams to have their name engraved on the Stanley Cup. And just about every team that has won the trophy has engraved their name and year in which they won the trophy onto the cup, but not all have done so. Early in the life of the cup, teams had to add their names to the trophy at their own expense, so some chose not to do so. Nowadays, though, the NHL has an official engraver who is especially careful about the engraving. There have only been four official engravers sanctioned by the NHL in the cup's lifetime. Since 1926, it's been awarded to the top professional team in the National Hockey League, and every league winner has had their name etched on the trophy by one of the engravers, which I just mentioned. But as more and more teams needed to have their names immortalized on the trophy, a decision was made to put a separate single ring below the original cup that each new winning roster could be etched on. Between 1927 and 1949, a vertical incarnation of the cup was used. It had a cylindrical shape and was nicknamed the Stovepipe Cup, but by 1948, it had become too tall to hold or to put on display. It was kind of flimsy, so the shape was changed to the tiered version, which we use today. And since 1958, the five bands of championship names are engraved around the base of the cup. And you might be wondering what happens when one of those bands, or when all of the bands, fill up. 
And what happens is when the rings become full, the oldest band is removed and preserved in Lord Stanley's vault at the Great Esso Hall in the Hockey Hall of Fame. A blank replacement band is then put in its place to be filled with the names of the next champions. There is just enough room for about 13 teams uh, to be on each ring, and the most recent time that a ring has been replaced, just at the end of the 2017-2018 um, season, when the championship teams from 1953-54 to 1964-65 came off. Um, this was, of course, to make room for the next couple of champions, and it's been two years since then. As of now, the only two teams with their names on the bottom band of the cup are the 2018 Washington Capitals and the 2019 St. Louis Blues, both of which had never had the honor of winning the cup prior to those years. All right, now that brings us to the end of this week's show. If you've made it this far, I thank you for hanging out with me, and I hope that you learned a little bit. If you enjoyed the show, I would ask that you please leave a review, like, subscribe, or follow if you can. Like I said before, feedback from you guys is huge and helps to take this podcast to the next level. Um, in addition, I really would love to hear what you guys want to learn. If you have any fun trivia facts or you want questions pertaining to a certain topic, please leave that in your feedback or comment on any of ThinkCap's social media posts. Um, just like I did with episode 11, the first question this week was a fan-submitted question. It was a fun fact uh, that somebody told me, and I thought it made a pretty good trivia question. So it made it into ThinkCap. So don't be shy. Don't be afraid to uh, send me a message or leave a comment um, with a fun fact or any of that stuff, because I will try to incorporate all of those things that you guys know and that you guys like to hear. So um, once again, I thank you for listening. I will catch you next week and take care. Girl, I don't want to share you. We could be together, but you scared to. I ain't gonna leave you. My peoples tell me that I should, but I need you. And when I blow, I hope you know that I could have any girl I choose. But I know as time goes by, baby, all I'm gonna want is you. Girl, I don't want to share you, share you.